Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Fire Science Show, episode 55. Today, I'm again with Professor Arnold Dix, part two of our interview. If you listened to the episode one week ago, you know it's worth a listen. And if you have not, then you should definitely try because uh, these are two great episodes. Professor Arnold Dix is um, the president-elect of International Tunneling Association and one of the smartest people in the tunneling industry, one of the best fire engineers in the tunneling industry and absolute well of knowledge in terms of tunneling and safety. And last episode with Arnold, we've discussed tunnels as intergenerational projects and some consequences of that, uh, how sustainable they can be if you start looking at them as a piece of infrastructure that would serve the society for hundreds of years. We've discussed about the phase of design of tunnels and more interestingly about the operational phase of the tunnels and the part that fire safety engineers will play in them. So that's definitely a great piece if you're interested in tunneling engineering. Today with Arnold, we hop into world of exciting technologies in tunnels and some future. It was really interesting to pick his brain on what he thinks about new futuristic approaches. Well, we, we start very conventionally with approach and engineering and optimization when the tunnel is a part of a commercial activity, not a public investment. But then we quickly move into super sexy stuff like the boring company tunnels, Teslas, uh, Hyperloops, and future cities based upon tunnels. So yeah, I think this episode is, is for you because it will cover the future of fire safety engineering as, as we predicted, and I hope we're good in predicting that, actually. And a little spoiler in the end. Arnold's going to reveal his super cool hobby. And that's something that I was not ready for. I, well, actually, he was introduced to me as a barista and I thought he's making coffee. Well, then I learned it's a, another word for lawyer. Kind of sucks when English is not your first language, <laughs> but he's a pretty chill person and he actually explained it to me. But yeah, if you think about his hobby and I think the way I thought that his hobby is making coffee, that's, that's, Two completely different worlds and, and his hobby is exciting. You have to listen to the end to learn that. So that's a secret and that's a motivation to reach the end of the episode. Anyway, I'm standing here between you and exciting future fire safety engineering. So I'm going to move myself away. But before I let you go, I also need to ask you for something. I need to ask you to give me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening. It It's more increasingly more and more important thing to to the podcast to be discovered by people. And one way to discover is by this podcast being recommended to people and it will not get recommended if you do not recommend it through the five-star ratings that you can give me. So if you would like to help me growing the show, I would really appreciate if you could switch off for a second and drop five stars. That is really helpful to the growth of the show. Welcome to the Fireside Show. My name is Wojciech Wingzinski and I will be your host. Hello everybody, welcome to the Fire Science Show. Today I have Professor Arnold Dix, part two. Hey Arnold, great to see you again. Hey, great to see you again. This is all so familiar now. <laughs> Part two, my goodness. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've asked and you've delivered. Thank you so much. You know, for 50 episodes, I 
always put this little tunnel insights into the podcast because that's my main thing I do in my work somehow. And it's always to fire scientists who deal with everything else. And now I have a tunnel guy. Yes, I can go all the way in on the tunnels. I love it. I hope people like it, though. <laughs> I'm excited. I think everyone likes tunnels. My my five-year-old daughter loves tunnels. So every everyone is excited about tunnels. So, uh, Arnold, last episode, we've talked about uh, sustainability, some aspects of the tunnels as a foundation for the future, as a, a means to build a better future for the planet. That's a very convenient way to do that. And today, I would love to pick your brain on some particular aspects of tunneling technology, including ones that are maybe more down-to-earth and more engineer-friendly and the ones that are kind of futuristic and really, uh, I wouldn't say crazy, but really ambitious, like like Hyperloops and, and other stuff. So, so it's going to be a great episode. So let's start with the boring one, tunnels. Um, so I know you live in Australia, so you, I assume you were involved in some tunneling projects there, and that's a big market for tunnels. I also know that in Australia, a lot of tunnels are built as a commercial project where the value of the tunnel, the risk is on the, the contractor that the tunnel is commercially a uh, success. They charge people when you enter. So, so I would assume these guys would do anything to lower the cost of the tunnel to the absolute minimum because whatever they pay goes from their pocket. In my country, it's usually public investors, so it goes from pockets of, of us all, but not in the same Way so first, could you tell me? Do you see a difference working with like public agencies and the commercial companies that own tunnels and and build tunnels for their own? Really, really interesting question. Great question, actually, because you can imagine, and indeed, you've just said you think that because it's the private sector that's there delivering this tunnel that they're going to charge for its use, that they're going to build it as cheaply as they can. But actually, that's not what happens at all, and. That, I think, has been one of the great lessons for me in my career is working with both public and private sector to deliver underground infrastructure. And where it's the private sector and they're charging for access to the infrastructure, what I've seen, and I mean, I've seen it, I've touched it, I've felt it, is that the private sector demands that the tunnel's available, that they actually need it to be fully functional. They actually don't want it to get damaged. So safety becomes mission critical for the business. So actually, safety isn't some separate subject. Safety is central to business as usual. And I see that um, there's a company that does quite a lot of work here in Australia and also in other parts of the world called Transurban. And Transurban aren't a tunnel company. They're a big investment organisation, but they love tunnels. And so they've got this incredible depth of expertise in the engineering side that they apply to make their tunnels really, really robust. And really, really robust means safe. And safe means not only don't you get injured in them, but in the event that there's some sort of an incident, the tunnel's up and running really quickly like really, really quickly. So the whole the whole approach to the fire engineering is part of the total engineering package of a robust, absolutely resilient bit of infrastructure that generates income and is available all the time. So it's 
almost the opposite of what you expect. Nice. I would have thought they'd build them cheap. I, I thought as well, yeah. Yeah. So typically, for those of your audience who are tunnel aficionados, in their tunnels, they've got active fire suppression systems. Normally, a maybe in other parts of the world, an expensive item. They've got dedicated, usually smoke extraction, depending upon which part of the world they're in, but either dedicated smoke extraction or very advanced longitudinal ventilation systems. Really, really active and advanced incident detection systems, computer-aided um, with, you know, the artificial intelligence overlays, mm. dynamic risk assessments where instead of just having a set of minimum operating requirements, they actually quantify in terms of risk the consequences, say, for a, a loss of fans or a loss of sensors or a whatever it might be in their systems and try and actively manage the risk in order to maintain the functionality and the cash flow and the safety. And so that's, it's so not what you expect. It's one of these things like yeah. when someone tells you it's obvious, like uh, if the tunnel is closed, they do not earn money. If the tunnel is perceived dangerous because there was a major fire in it and no one takes it, they do not earn money. So, so in the end, uh, you're right. Uh, it makes sense. If you positioned it in that way, it absolutely makes sense. And, and you could even say that in here, resilience of the tunnel is a really huge thing. Yeah, be able to bring it back to life after a fire incident is the, the number one mission. So I really love that. But that also probably means, I, I also don't think they just spend cash. Oh yeah, you have seven normal systems, please drop them. No, no, <laughs> I, 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 no. But, no, but no. Th that also means they must have worked out what's most cost, cost efficient. Like what is the cheapest way to provide safety? You've mentioned sprinkler systems. I have really difficult or general water extinguishing systems. I have really big problems convincing public clients that, that this is something worth investing in. So did you have any experience in convincing a party there or maybe they were just convinced at the start? Yeah. No, no, weren't convinced at all. A lot of fighting, a lot of grinding of teeth and scratching of nails and all those sorts of things. Well, what's what's interesting though, and again for, for your audience, is as fire engineers, the fundamental safety concept in tunnels varies around the world. So mm. if, if we're talking from, a, say, a Western European perspective, traditionally the safety concept is one in which maintaining stratification for the evacuation, self-evacuation phase is really important. And that's, that typically underlies, that I'd call it the tradi traditional Western European approach. And, and, of course, that makes sense too in Europe where temperatures are often very low and so the idea of introducing water or active suppression systems into a tunnel environment that might be sub-zero is a bit counterintuitive on its face. But on the other hand, in other parts of the world or even in those parts of the world, if you put your mind to it, you can have a different safety concept from a fire engineering point of view and you can say, you know what, being so hung up over stratification of smoke is being a bit defeatist because it's assuming you're going to have a really big fire and we're going to have all of this stratified smoke hanging out here in the tunnel. What if we were really aggressive with active fire suppression so that we could be confident the size of the fire event in the event that occurs is substantially minimised? So in terms of our frequency distribution of fire size, we can have confidence it's only going to be little. 
And if we can make it little, then the probability that we interfere with the structure of the tunnel, so the actual fabric of the tunnel and compromise it structurally, which is often important either under mountains or under other water bodies because you don't want the things to go from a tunnel to a drain pipe and fill up with water, or where you want to protect the systems in the tunnel. So, you know, all of your digital information systems, your linear heat detections, your, you know, all the comms, all of the cables. In either case, you can go, no, we're going to go for active fire suppression. We recognise that it will have a de-stratification impact and the de-stratification impact will to some extent impact on self-rescue. But in the other hand, what this delivers is smaller fires and it delivers much more robust tunnels because we think we can keep the fire small and not have the catastrophic runaway events like what we've seen in um, Mont Blanc, you know, other, you know, other fires over the years. And the argument in Australia has been won on that basis that the number crunchers say we can deliver a high level of safety, we can minimise the number of large events, we accept that there'll be de-stratification of smoke, but there's going to be very few events where it's really going to matter. And that's been our experience. And it was actually Japan that led with this rationale because Japan had had a catastrophic fire, I think it was back in the 50s, uh, and then they put in active suppression systems and they used their tunnels for years and nothing much ever happened because whenever there was a little fire, it stayed little. So really interesting, really counterintuitive and highlights the cultural dimensions to fire engineering in different parts of the world and the stratification approach traditionally in Western Europe and now what we're seeing is sort of the more the Australian, Japanese and increasingly European, particularly with the misting systems coming out of Europe where we go for let's keep the fires small and to the extent we've lost stratification, so what? Because actually it's safer. And actually, yeah, you're, you're, the infrastructure is going to be more. It's super up. interesting because here you touch the very fabric of fire safety engineering. Like, we have these concepts that are holy. You've said in the previous episode that some engineers would think about their uh, tunnels like sacred structures. But in, in the same way, the fire engineers can look at some concepts of fire safety engineering, like their, you know, sacred rules, Ten Commandments of Fire Engineering, those shall keep the smoke above the head of the evacuees. And it makes sense in a certain socio-technical context in which this rule was formulated. But if your socio-technical context has changed in the meantime, it may not make that much sense uh, anymore. The same with like 10 meter visibility rule. There, there's many critical velocity in, in, in tunnels comes to my mind as a concept that's almost a religion. It, and I hate it. I hate it. I, I, I loved how NFPA has went into increasing the critical velocity um, in like 2019, if I'm not wrong, edition of 502. And then uh, there was mass uh, criticism over the world. And uh, I've also made a troll account and uh, participated in that. But there was a, a massive uppress yeah. in the engineering community that we see that for one, our systems that we were designing for years were meeting performance goals in terms of fires and making uh, the smoke go where we want. And two, we see that new values give you much higher numbers, which means you have to design 30, 40, 50% stronger systems. And we also identified the potential source of that 
going to scale model tests and the way how some data was extrapolated in a good faith because that was the best knowledge available at the time, but it didn't really click. And I highly respected NFPA community and the group, and you are an important member of that group. So my congratulations for the whole group go to, to through your hands to them. I, I really appreciate that they've backed to the previous solution based on scientific evidence. It's not common that someone would back off from a solution that may not be working. Too often we find these solutions being pushed on people too hard. And even further, with this backing up, I, I think it started some movement to rethink the concept. And as Norman was showing at Graz conference, maybe we can talk about not critical velocity, but confinement velocity, where you allow some level of backlayering, which sounds bad as a word, but it's not really that dangerous as a concept and find more optimized solutions for ventilation. For me, that is like mind break, like world breaking thing, because this is my main goal that I work with. So back to the social technical systems, this critical velocity concept maybe have worked in a world where we didn't have experience CFD. Uh, you know, we were in complete memorial tunnel times. Well, I'm glad you're excited about it. It was probably one of the most painful things for us intellectually to do on NFPA. And I, I think you're right. It showed a real strength by us to stop and re-look at our own work and back up and say, you know what, there's a better way of doing this. And and you're exactly right about the social technical because what, what we're witnessing right now, like, I mean, right now, like, like what is it, whatever date it is today, is saying, we're going to take a different conceptual approach. The overall fire engineering approach, we're going to talk about having authority over the smoke or command over the smoke and not just arbitrarily say there'll be no backlayering. And by doing that, it liberates the fire engineer to be more holistic about what they're actually delivering. And isn't that what it is to be a fire engineer, to be professional, to be able to really not just look at one dimension um, to this safety issue underground, but to say, actually, actually, you know, we're going to look at, say, like we've just been talking, we're going to talk about active fire suppression. We're going to talk about tenability of the environment, but not just in the strict, you know, how long can someone survive, but what about intelligibility for our emergency messages? What about self-rescue? What about, what about, what about and build layer upon layer of a safety concept as fire engineers, multidisciplinary enabled fire engineers, not just critical velocity fire engineers. So I'm I'm excited that you're excited. I mean, it's been a, an amazing mm. journey intellectually, and I think a big leap forward for fire safety underground for the world. This is also why I love tunnels, because uh, for some reason, tunnels are the forefront of innovation in fire safety engineering. And... In some twisted way, it's maybe the intellectually the most open field for rethinking the basic concepts. Maybe after chemical engineering, the first one to implement risk methods in, in designing safety, which is already impressive. And now you say we're at the level of questioning the fundamental concepts and rethinking them and finding possible better options, not necessarily saying they're bad and will not work. It's just to know that we need to try and scout out if there is something else around. And I really, really appreciate that approach from the NFP committee and uh, 
in general, the, the tunneling committee has a, has a commitment to build a better future. And, and us engineers should be excited because you give us tools in the toolbox and everyone likes to receive a new tool. Like we're, we're, we're still the children in the playground. I, I love to have new tools available for myself. I would like to move on. Uh, we started with optimization and there's some concepts in the world of tunneling that are really interesting to me. And I know people in my audience Two, there is this company called The Boring Company by Elon Musk. Yeah, it's a great pun in the name of the company. It used to say flamethrowers, but now it's building tunnels as, as it was initially intended to. And every now and then on Twitter, where I'm quite active, there's a discussion about these tunnels. Because when you see videos of these tunnels, as a fire engineer, you're like Spider-Man senses tingle you see that something is like different. It's not like we're used to. So to explain to my audience who had never seen that these tunnels, it's like really small cross-section tunnels that bur- that can mostly fit one Tesla car or one car in general. And they're meant to transfer you from point A to B so you're not stuck in traffic. But the, from B, the immediate thing is... Like I see a tunnel, but there are things I do not see. I do not see jet fans. I do not see extraction points. I do not see evacuation exits. I do not see evacuation uh, paths even in the tunnel because it just fits one car. So I'm very not used to this image. So w- what were your first impressions when you seen this as an endeavor? And maybe maybe let's try to figure out why they are trying to build them like this. Yeah, well, I, I look, great example of almost like McDonaldization of, of the yeah. underground because what he's, what he's done, and all credit to him, is he's yeah. got a standard diameter tunnel. Mm. He's actually, in a very real sense, adopting a metro concept because he's putting mm. only his cars down there. And so mm-hmm. his rolling stock, even though it doesn't look like a train, is in a very real sense very much like a train because he knows about its onboard navigation system. He knows about its propulsion system. He knows about Mm. the materials it's built. He knows about the acceleration performance, the braking performance, all of that sort of stuff. So it's not like his tunnel has just got any old random vehicles in it. No, it's got his rolling stock in it that happens to be Tesla's. Uh, And Therefore, he's also got a captured communications and command system, a bit like a signalling system. He's building his own McDonald's-style metro with cars, his cars. So I think yeah. that's, that's how he can do it because it, it just wouldn't make sense if you let me down there in my old Land Rover, for example. Mm-hmm. I'd cause mayhem. I don't know what you drive, but it, <laughs> it's... I don't know Build if you've a got Tesla. a Tesla. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't have a Tesla and I'll probably never have a Tesla. Not because I don't love them, but it's just not part of how I roll in this part of the world. I think <laughs> in my country and in your country, our electricity comes from coal in a lot. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it doesn't quite work. But that, that's what he's done. Too. Like he's yeah. awesomely visionary because everyone's like, oh, my God. It's the tunnel boring company and the Elon Musk solution, but it's so much more than that. And yeah, I reckon if you look at it properly as engineers should, as scientists should, you'll see it's much more the metro 
closed system than anything we're used to seeing with cars because it's not really like cars as we know them. Um, And he's a smart guy. By standardising everything, he gets all sorts of economic efficiencies. And and the other thing is he just delivers. Like if he promises something, he'll do it. So whenever he says something that I think is outrageous, I just think, well, I should sign up for whatever it is because I know he'll do it. Even if the price is crazy, he'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was following that development from the very beginning, like from the first tweet about uh, him being stuck in a tunnel saying, this is boring. I, I should start a boring company and we'll build tunnels underneath the city so I'm not stuck in traffic. It literally happened like that. It was hilarious. And and then he started selling flamethrowers for some reason. That that was really cool. And they couldn't ship them internationally because it was called a flamethrower. So they changed the official name of the product to not a flamethrower. And they were shipping them like that. I mean, I, I appreciate good jokes and, and, and uh, this is my type of humor. But um, two things that he said while developing this uh, concept is one, the tunneling process is painfully slow is extremely, extremely slow process. It takes so long to drill a tunnel. And I saw these comparisons where he was showing like the moles and tunnel boring machines and the mole was like 100 times quicker in drilling tunnels than than humans. And he said, we would like to at least capture the the mole (laughs) as benchmark. And what they did is, what you said, they standardized the tunnel boring machine to make it more efficient in a way, quicker in a way. And they started drilling tunnels at at the speeds that are unprecedented. I think they reached like two or three meters per day, which is a very large speed for building a tunnel. If you can drill three meters per day, that's a kilometer in a month almost. So that's that's insane. And that that was the number one, that that was the magnetization of of the TBM, as you mentioned. And the second thing, which I thought was in a way brilliant, is that the traffic network is two-dimensional. On two-dimensional space, what you can do is add more lanes. And as we discussed in the green room before, it does not really work. In Los Angeles, they have a lot of lanes and it still congests. What he said, tunnels can be three-dimensional because eventually you could put the tunnel under tunnel under tunnel. And I probably know some geotechnical experts who got a heart attack after that <laughs> because that's not that easy. But it's an engineering world. You find solution. So it is in a way, like if if they're pushing for the concept, if they have the technology to do that, it's going to be a reality. And us fire engineers, we, we are not there to say, oh, your concept is stupid, but let's figure out uh, what the real challenges are to the people who use it, to the society, and let's try to find ways to solve that and maybe put some smart legislation in place that would maybe force them to do some stuff that would make these tunnels really safe. Yeah, look, my take, firstly, I don't think there's any magic in the way he bores his tunnel. Um, uh-huh. I, I think there's a lot of hype about that, but there there hasn't been any wonderful innovation. He's standardised uh-huh. the size of the tunnels that he builds and sometimes you can have good luck by the rock you're in as well. But from from my perspective, there's nothing earth-shattering about what he's achieving in in his actual production rates. That's just... So just, in, just a general improvement in the technology that led to 
And by say that standardization, he could just optimize the whole yeah. like rock like, removal process, for example. Yeah, like a McDonald's. You know, you want to type for McDonald's on the corner over there. You send your order in, and the McDonald's drops one from outer space and it falls <laughs> yes. together. So, I mean, that's the sort of advantage he brings. But I don't think any great technological improvement in his actual boring of tunnels. His vehicles, on the other hand, yes, there's clearly innovation in the vehicles. Everything from the the signaling systems, the propulsion systems and what have you. But I've got to agree with you, those vehicles aren't without issue and they do catch on fire and modern materials do burn like hell. Um, and that's quite apart from the, the propulsion systems themselves with the electrical systems on board and what have you. Just, mm. just the plastics and all those new light materials, they burn fast and, and they burn toxic. So having them in a environment which is confined without a ventilation system from fire engineering 101 point of view, I think that's a dangerous and if we were being politically correct, I'd call it brave move by anybody to bold. do. Uh, bold. Um, yeah, I, so I don't, I don't approve of that. I think that in fire engineering, we're big enough and ugly enough to know that tenability, particularly in a confined space for human beings, is so fragile. And yeah, mm-hmm. sure, when you look at the graph, there's only three minutes there where we can't breathe. How bad can that be? And of course, the answer, as we know, is really bad. It kills us. So, you know, and so access to a safe place and ventilation, I think, are no-brainers. And you're right, I think there should be an overarching regulatory requirement for that. And to the extent that's regulating the market, so be it. Uh, I just think that's fair. I don't like, for example, how any of these autonomous vehicles, whatever they're called, get to be on our road systems without an independent licensing authority verifying Mm. the performance of the robot and whether it's underground or on the surface. So that's another thing I don't like. I don't think in a pub, particularly in a public place, so in his private system, I can understand it, but I think the vehicles in a public place, a public tunnel, there there really should be some independent verification of the autopiloting because they're with us. Mm. Robots, the robots are sharing the space with us. You've got to be licensed. Mm. I've got to be licensed. I want the robot to be licensed too because, you know, it needs an objective set of performance for how it behaves. Otherwise, it might harm me. I had a firefighter's spot robot, you know, the Boston Dynamics dog chasing me yesterday and <laughs> uh, at the conference in here, and it was an amazing piece of technology. Yeah. I, I, I love it. I hope they don't give it a gun, though. <laughs> so yeah. I've watched too much Black Mirror. <laughs> to, to, yeah. I, it's at the same scary and, and, and interesting. Um, from the concepts we, we've talked, I, I did assemble a group of scientists we can call ourselves Avengers, <laughs> <We're>, <laughs> yep. with the goal to understand the risks related to these tunnels. So we want to build um, models of the tunnels. We want to solve the piston effect in the tunnel because that's, to me, that's number one thing, the, the way how momentum is transferred from vehicle to the air in the tunnel and all the lag coefficients, like how long it takes for air to stop in the tunnel. Like if your vehicle stops and then there there another vehicle incoming behind you, how much of air is that vehicle pushing on you and how long will that last? Can the, is this like a valid longitudinal ventilation or not? How buoyancy will affect that? We, basically, can smoke go to the way 
where people are because I I heard claims that these tunnels are, are smoke ventilated and I build smoke ventilation. They don't look like smoke ventilated tunnels to me. I don't see these devices. I'm sorry. Maybe I'm, I'm blind and they should take my license to ventilate, but I don't see that. So the, to me, they're un, unventilated spaces. And now in the non-ventilated spaces with no evacuation paths, you've essentially removed the whole layer of safety, which is evacuation. There is no evacuation. You have to be rescued, and that's going to be problematic too. It's not that the fire... Uh, we, we had this joke in the firefighter school that uh, when, when we have... Our school has received this huge American truck, you know, like you see in the movies, this giant vehicle, and it, it was so loud and noisy. It was There was a running joke that when this truck enters on a sag- signal to the Viswastrada tunnel in Warsaw, the cars uh, switch to the ceiling to make space to it because it's so loud and un- obnoxious. But <laughs> unfortunately, it was just a joke. It doesn't work like that. The, the cars in that tunnel cannot make space for a fire truck. It would not even fit inside the tunnel. So mm. it's also, you don't have really great way to rescue people. It's a huge challenge for me. And if I go into this thought with an open mind that you cannot evacuate, you cannot be rescued, then the only reasonable answer I get to fire safety strategy is that you cannot have a fire in there. You have to make sure reliability of the system is high enough to not have a fire. And the second thought, limit the consequences I think this is the first infrastructure in which traffic management would be even more important than, I don't know, ventilation or, or fire resistance of the walls. Like traffic management would be everything. We do not allow traffic jam to form in that tunnel that you already exponentially increase the safety of the of the thing. But it, it's a challenging concept. And I think not only the fire community, but the whole tunneling community must think about it because it seems like more and more cities are contracting their services and these tunnels will be are going our way and we're not stopping them. Yeah, look, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Your point about just not having fires is central to that earlier comment I made about you have to draw an analogy between the Tesla and a metro train because mm-hmm. that's what it's like. It's like a fully controlled vehicle. I, on a vehicle like a Tesla car, uh, I mean, what springs to mind, I know it's very old fashioned, but having onboard fire suppression systems in the vehicles themselves, just like we've done mm-hmm. for many years in, in high risk vehicles in the engine bay or what have you. And so, you know, in a, in a Tesla, it might be where the, the wiring looms are and maybe the probably the miring looms and propulsion systems would be the main source of ignition. But, you know, like you, I could imagine you could do it pretty quickly and it doesn't have to be a big system on board. You're right about the traffic control. You just can't afford to have congestion because if you have multiple Teslas all bumper to bumper and you get a fire, it's going to spread really quickly because you've got all of that mm. energy in the vehicles, both in terms of the stored chemical electric energy and these modern materials. I mean, they're essentially plastic vehicles. Mm. Like when we were growing up, we used to have metal vehicles. I don't know if you remember them, but they were they were an old fashioned concept. These are these are mostly plastics now, apart from key structural elements 
In my part of the world, there was Trabant vehicle and yeah. used plastic. <laughs> so, they, so they plastic, were they? Oh. Yeah, they, they had plastic. Uh, they had pla- and there, there's even, I think, some heat release rate curve from Trabant vehicle from like um, 80s. And it's insane. It's like insane peak. And everyone was saying, oh, but that's a Trabant. That's a plastic vehicle. Maybe that's more relevant to the modern cars than we yeah. actually thought. You were ahead of your time. Yeah, yeah, just, it, was, <laughs> it was these Germans. <laughs> we we yeah. had worse in Poland. Yes, oh. we had funnier vehicles, but yeah, that's now they're all uh, called legendary. You know, everything that was in communist time is now legendary. Legend. Legendary car of it's not that they're old and useless; they're legendary now. Yeah. <laughs> and their legend was born not because you didn't have really a choice of, of purchasing a different one. Anyway, I love this, and uh, there, there's one more concept. Also, Elon was a huge advocate for that, and it's also in safety strategy. It's it's very similar in a way. It's the hi- hyperloop concept, the, the concept where you would build a, a pipe, a tunnel, or or just a pipe on the ground. I guess for for our considerations, you could consider it the same, in which you would create vacuum because where goes energy of your transport vehicle when you move? It goes to the friction of, of your tires and it goes to the airflow resistance it faces. That's primary sources why you need so much horsepower on your car and on on your train. And Hyperloop as a concept, you remove the air by creating a vacuum space, so so no air friction anymore. You levitate it on a magnetic field, so no tire friction anymore. And you can basically shoot them at at a speed of 1,000 kilometers per hour. There's no sound speed because it's in a vacuum, so, so literally you can go as as much as you wish pretty much so, so the idea is this this could be a, a new solution for long distance transport not the short distance but long distance transport in a very very quick way and also like there's this hyperloop contest they have a demonstrator build they it, it's, it's a growing thing so so what is uh what's your opinion on that technology yeah as a, as a future it, look I, I I love anything that stretches us as engineers, so I'm a big fan of innovation and change and what have you. In the Hyperloop example, I'm not as worried about fire and life safety, but I I mean, I am worried, of course, because it's a confined space, but I'm actually much more troubled about the fundamental physiology of human beings um, being propelled at, say, a thousand kilometres an hour and at any moment only being, you know, 10 mils or 20 mils from having to do a crash landing. And the reason that really troubles me is because, you know, I'm sure you're aware I investigate disasters. So I'm a bit of a the man of the shadows who investigates when I've got dead people. And, um, and you know, and I investigate regularly in, in tunnels and in construction, typically people die because they collapse on them and we discover that humans aren't very strong and they just get killed. You get squashed and it doesn't take much. Uh, then in operational tunnels, people tend to die from fire, but not from the actual fire itself. It's from the smoke. So I've never actually had a death that I've investigated where the fire has killed someone. There have been people burnt subsequently, but always the blood analysis has shown it's been the smoke inhalation that's killed them. You can see by the, the blood toxicity, what have you. But I think the the, the thing that troubles me in the Hyperloop scenario is the deceleration with such a a very shallow, you know, 20 mils or 30 mils to land the thing from a 1,000 kilometres an hour in the event of some catastrophic failure in the vacuum. And I don't think 
that's been handled correctly yet. So even though we're fire and life safety engineers, I actually think the big risk there is in it's the analogy, it's like in airlines, <clears throat> mostly for those of you who investigate airline disasters, mostly it's people's heads coming off in airline crashes because of the deceleration when you bump into the ground at some out, outrageous speed. Um, and so broken necks and heads coming off. And I think that's really the big risk in the the Hyperloop. It's this, how do you manage deceleration from a thousand kilometres an hour where you're flying if you use the aircraft analogy, you're flying at 30 millimetres, you're travelling at 1,000 kilometres an hour, oh, and now we're going to do an emergency landing. And we don't want to slow down too quickly because everyone's heads will fall off. So that's that's my rather grim yeah. view of it. But, I, but you know, if we, if we, I think we can solve other issues. I think the, the vacuum, you know, there's issues about if we get sudden catastrophic loss of the vacuum, of course, everything's in trouble along that pipe. How do you get intervention? How do you get out of the vehicle? Mm. So you're now in a vehicle, there's been catastrophic loss of vacuum outside. You're suddenly the heat transfer situation's changed because you've not got a vacuum outside anymore. How much air supply have you got on board? Who's going to come and help you? Like, because it's long mm. distances, like you, at a thousand kilometres an hour, typically these things are put in for. Um, I think they're modelled, you need at least 500 kilometres and typically one or 2,000 kilometres to make them really stack up as a tra- as a mover of people. So where are your intervention stations going to be? Where are the people going to be to intervene? How are you going to get them there in a hurry? What are they going to find? How do you get, you know, like some big questions, great concept, but really practical questions relating to the fact that we as humans are fragile things. Really fragile thing. I think again, this is a reliability based system, and that's the only solution because you cannot really provide a sufficient level of fire engineering there to limit the consequences of your fire. There, there is just no no way, especially in terms of, of of human evacuation. If for some reason this vehicle can stop in the tunnel and the people can survive the deceleration, accelera- you're basically left with the oxygen you have in your tank because you cannot unvacuum the pipe that quickly. So that definitely brings completely new array of challenges that engineering has not met, but has to fight. I, I, looking at this Hyperloop system, I, I really wonder, aren't we good enough with high-speed trains? I mean, there are already high-speed trains that, that go at 400, 500 kilometers per hour, and they, they, they use just this stupid wheels and this metal uh, rods on which they drive called the tracks, and, and, they, and they work. It's proven technology. It's a safe technology. And do we really need this to cut another 30% of the commute time? Isn't, it, isn't that a, the fundamental question? Looking forward, we've got a planet in crisis. We've got the climate emergency. We've got a call for cities to be more human, for the dimensions of the, the journeys that we take to be more human, to, to improve the efficiencies of what we do. We've got that in our left hand. And then, as you say, we've got a an unproven technology to propel us in a vacuum at a thousand kilometers an hour with all sorts of other complications at a time when maybe that sort of transport is being questioned. Maybe that's not the cities of the future. Maybe that's not where humankind is going because actually the planet can't handle it anymore. I mean, it's some really interesting fundamental questions. And you're right, the high-speed trains are really, really reliable and really proven. 
So, you know, maybe maybe just concentrating on them is enough instead of propelling human beings in vacuums. So yeah. but I feel but, bad. I feel like I'm an old person talking like that. Surely uh, I want to. <laughs> of course. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. It, it's the future. It's like in Jetsons or, or some other <laughs> other uh, science, science fiction um, videos. Uh, that's, yeah. It's nice to be excited about these technologies, but as engineers, we also share responsibility, especially fire engineers, because we're in our unique nation. Uh, as I said in my in my previous episode, it's we need to communicate better, and to communicate, you need to listen to people, and that's number one thing we need to do. And it's not that we we should go and say, oh, it's a stupid idea, but let's listen why they want to build it, how they want to build it, and maybe we can find a solution. Okay, by this doing this, you can build it safer. You've mentioned about the future of the planet and the concepts around that, and uh, that brings me to the final question I wanted to ask you, because there's this brave idea in Saudi Arabia to create a city oriented around the human. So most of uh, cities we live in in the Western world are oriented around vehicles, cars. The cities are built to accommodate cars pretty well, and in Saudi Arabia, they, there there was this concept of neom. It's, um, I, I find it in the internet through the name of Lion City. It's like a city that stretches in with like a 170 or 200 kilometer line. And um, it's a concept that it would be a city oriented around a human being. So you could basically reach anything you need within like, I don't know, 20 minutes or something. And you do that by public transport, which is massively underground public transport. And the, the upper layer is like parks, recreation and, and activities. And this, it's really like a, a beautiful concept. And the tunnels lie in the very central point of that concept. What, what do you think about such ideas for cities? Look, I, as much as I have some reservations about the Hyperloop, I get a bit of a sexy feeling about the NEOM concept. And the reason that it excites me is because it's putting human beings first. It's actually saying, what could we do as citizens on the planet now to create a place for humans to thrive? And credit where credit's due, to have a city with a fundamental concept that there are no cars, that almost everything is within five minutes walking of where you are, and if it's not within five minutes of walking, it will be within 20 minutes of a transportation solution, which will be provided to you by a smart system that learns. Because that's the other thing. It's not just a city. It's this intelligent, high-tech learning city that adapts and adjusts itself to seek, to suit and respond to the needs of human beings. I mean, what a concept, putting humans at the centre of a city like this. So, look, I, I'd love to see it. I think it's it's fantastic that a government has got the resources and the vision and the ability to make the decisions to actually just build it. Because as you know, they're building it. I've got a real soft spot for Saudi. I've been working there for better part of 10 years. And transportation and city building, as I've seen it, for example, in Riyadh, is truly socially um it's social engineering. It's fundamentally changing Saudi society by providing transportation options like on the metro that's being put there. And then you have this in the NEOM concept. Now, I take my hat off. I, I think 
this type of thinking is going to help us in all our cities with our future decision-making. And NEOM might become the example of how you do it when you've got a greenfield site, but it'll become inspirational for other cities where they say, want to re-energise part of the city or they want to liberate the space on the surface for humans and put the utilities below. Yeah, I, I'm ex- actually, I really am excited by it. I just think credit where credit's due, great visionary stuff. For a long, long time in Warsaw, we just had one metro line, like a straight line, and it was built in an open field because they first built the service center and then they started building tunnels from that point. So essentially, it at the start, it connected few fields together with not really connection to city center. And 30, 40 years later, it's, it's a very vibrant residential area. Obviously, it's focused around cars because that's how we build our cities. But the metro as a bloodline of that system is really... I, I lived in that place and I confirm people in that space have the mentality if something is not walking distance from the metro line, it does not exist. It's so convenient. And, and I can see uh, using that as a concept to build a, a city around. It, it, I've it, lived in Japan, in Tokyo, and also to some for a little bit of time in Osaka. And for an urban dweller with a dense system of underground public transport, you get to have a great life and you don't need a car and it's liberating. And so, yeah, I'm, I agree with you. I, I can imagine what you've described and, and how it's grown. Um, and also these concepts of underground cities, I have a sneaking suspicion, I recall, going under the Eagle Mountains and discovering what looked like the beginnings of an underground city dating back to the 1940s. But, you know, so this concept of having self-reliant, quite small com- communities, no reliance on cars, it goes back quite a while. And, I th- and it makes sense, I think, as a human being. I'm, I like it. But f- from our perspective, from fire engineers or safety engineers, the concept of fire is obviously important there and the resilience of infrastructure will be unprecedented because if the tunnel transport is the bloodline of your city and you stop that, you basically have a heart attack. And you don't want that in a city where you don't have a different traffic flows possible. But I, I also think because we are talking about moving a lot large groups of people through the city in a reliable manner, it's also going to present some challenges in crowd management. You, you've mentioned the AI approach to optimize it as it goes. So I assume it would dynamically change the, the traffic directions in some tune tunnels, maybe in the morning one way and the evening the other way, or maybe on the fly. Like in this 15 minutes, we need more trains this way, but in another 15 minutes, we need all them back. So so our systems now, in terms of how you design uh, metro stations, are quite rigid in a way how you design the flows of people. And and an adaptive system, that that brings uh, completely new challenges. And I see our colleagues from uh, crowd psychology and crowd dynamics, they're going to thrive in this new world because there's going to be so much work for them. 100%. Yeah, look, I, and, and really our discussion before of the tunnel boring company and what we're now talking about, I can imagine the future isn't going to be great big trains, but it's going to be autonomous vehicles. The analogy being like the Musk vehicles, but let's not call them the Musk vehicles, whatever they are, they're autonomous vehicles. And these things can do pretty much anything because they're not going to have drivers and they can go in any direction. 
And because they've got artificial intelligence on board, they're not going to crash into each other because we've got all that crashing stuff under control because we haven't got human beings at a steering wheel anymore or even in a train or what have you. So you significantly improved the, the capabilities to not crash by removing the monkey. Uh, it's, it's, it's a huge yeah. improvement. Yeah. It, it, isn't it funny with a train? You're destined to crash unless you can stop the thing because the tracks are going to crash you into the other train. I mean, what a recipe for disaster if you think about it. So I think the future, this combination of technology, on-demand, smart, artificial intelligence, big data, very responsive, trying to stop tidal flows of people. So the old workplaces as we knew them, which I think are really modifying themselves anyway. You know, the old nine to five thing, it seems to almost be dead now in many parts of the world. So we're almost humanizing the planet and our cities right now. And there's various motivations for it. I think it's happening. And I think what we're seeing in Saudi is an expression of it. And I think there's going to be more of it to come. And And it's likely to make the world better for each of us. If it works, it's going to be the case study. We're going to develop Other things. I, I mean, it's not that we're going to change Melbourne, London or, or Warsaw to a line city. I don't think that's feasible, but maybe we can learn and just improve the, the transport or the way how the transport, it's now oriented around the train. Maybe it should be oriented around the human and that's exciting. Mm. So I, I've read at some point in the internet, I was trying to charge my book, but my wife was charging her cigarettes. Future is stupid. <laughs> and... And after this discussion, I would say future sounds exciting and it's going to change like all the things we've discussed in here. It's new engineering we don't know yet, but uh, we are engineers, we're going to figure it out and it's going to be a great time. And I always tell my audience that future of fire safety engineers is very secure. It's a good, it's a good place to be. We're always going to have work. 100%. So long as there's oxidation, we're needed. Oh, yes. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, 100%. Okay, Arnold, thank you. I know you also had a podcast series around tunnels, so I'll advertise that and link that in the description if people are that to listen more of your uh, voice on, on tunnels. Yeah, And okay. uh, maybe maybe uh, for, for the end of this two-part episode, can you tell me where where you're going now? What's what's in your head now? What's the next project of Arnold Dix? Ah, so next project, next project of Arnold Dix, I'm desperate to get how we quantify and communicate the benefits to the planet of the underground. I want to really focus on that. So I'm heading over to Europe and the US to talk to the key infrastructure measurers of performance and to ask them whether they'll join me at the ITA in producing a like a hymn book, a, a guidebook, a, a narrative, a common way of describing what it is about the underground that helps deliver the future for humanity using the new language of sustainability development goals and, and, and what have you. So that's, that's my next thing. Um, privately, what I'm doing is you might have heard of the Code of Hammurabi, which is the most ancient expression of engineering and legal stuff coming out of the Europe, well, out of the Western world. And I'm myself and a good colleague of mine from Oman are trying to find the source of the stones upon which the Code of Hammurabi are written 
and we've got an expedition into the Middle East to see if we can find them. Wow. That is so cool. That is so cool. Way cool. That's, that's cooler than tunneling. Let's start a, a podcast on that. That's so, that is so cool. Make sure to record your way. It's going to be a great video to watch. Oh, it's, it's uh, wild. I, I think that's engineers. So that's engineering stuff for all of our engineers. That's the beginning of engineering back in the code of Hammurabi. So yeah. I'm so excited by that. But anyway, that's my spare time. That's my crazy hobby. <laughs> that's, that's wow, that, what a hobby. Like people collect post stamps and <laughs> what you do, I, I'm trying to find the origins of Code of Hammurabi. That's great. Yeah, yeah nice hobby. Fantastic, Arnold. It was uh, such a pleasure to, to have you. And I hope we'll, uh, we'll see each other again. Uh, there's uh, many more topics to be discussed. And I'm really looking forward to the outcomes of your expedition both in terms of finding Hammurabi code origins and finding a common language of sustainability in, in tunnels and how to communicate it to stakeholders. I, I'm not sure which I'm excited more about, <laughs> but <laughs> both, both sounds important. great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, goodness. Thank you for having me. It's been really fun. Thank you. I've enjoyed the chat. And that's it. I bet you didn't guess that his hobby is finding origins of code of Hammurabi. That is so crazy. And I, I really hope his expedition goes well. It's, it sounds really exciting, maybe even more exciting than the tunneling projects. And I really love how he's seeking the sustainability equation in tunnels, you know, how sustainable the tunnels really are, how we can measure the performance in terms of sustainability and do convey that to our stakeholders in a way they understand to highlight these aspects of tunnels. I also think that the discussion about Hyperloops and, and Elon Musk's tunnels was very interesting. I really enjoyed the discussion about Neom, the city in Saudi Arabia that is going to be built based on a tunnel's concepts. So that certainly a lot of interesting futuristic developments happening in the world of tunneling. And I'm really happy that we get to live through that. So my uh, fellow fire science engineers, I hope you really enjoyed these talks. For me, it was a huge pleasure to finally talk about tunnels in the podcast because that's what I do daily and that what that is what makes me happy. So I hope you're happy as well. Next week, next uh, great episode, more fire safety engineering coming your way. See you there next Wednesday. Bye. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.